0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki McDonald. This week, I chat with Julie Stanford, founder and principal of the user experience agency, Slice Bread Design. In this episode, we talk about how and when to use rapid experimentation. And Julie walks us step-by-step through the design thinking process she used to help a security startup discover the real problem it needed to solve with its product. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: Oh, pretty good. Um, happy to have you as a guest today. Thanks I for have having me. I have a lot of questions for you. Okay. You ready? Let's do it. Well, okay. I know you probably get this a lot, but your last name is Stanford. You graduated from Stanford and now you also teach at Stanford's D school. Coincidence? Hmm? Maybe. <laughs> Um, anyway, I just, I always find that funny. Anyway, at Stanford, you teach a course on prototyping and rapid experimentation, uh, a, a version of which you also teach for O'Reilly as a live online training course through Safari. So can you explain what is rapid experimentation and when and how should designers use it in their design process?
1: Sure. So the idea of rapid experimentation is it's about how do you figure out? if you have an idea and it's, how do you figure out if it's good? Rapid experimentation is a technique for figuring out if you have a good idea. So as you're going around designing things, running a company, being an entrepreneur, whatever it is that you do in in your work life or your daily life, you probably have all kinds of ideas that you're really excited about. And you're probably thinking, hey, is there some way that I could tell early on without investing a lot of time and energy and resources, if, if this is actually an idea that has legs for people. And traditionally, the way that, that people did that is they would um, ask people, right? Like the traditional method is surveys. Um, you know, hey, here here's this concept and tell me what you think. and you get large numbers and, and so on and so forth? Or you might create, let's say like a mock-up of some kind that's static or Maybe it's a little bit interactive, but you sit someone down and you say, Hey, what do you think about this? Imagine that you might be using it. How do you think that might go? And you know, that gives you some data, but it doesn't actually give you data about how people are, are actually going to engage with your idea as if it's already out there, right? It, it's just giving you data about how people might engage with your idea. And so the, the concept behind rapid experimentation is it's a technique for creating experiments that actually test Use of your or engagement with your idea in action. And so it's, it's sort of a philosophy, a set of techniques, a process around creating experiences really quickly that are uh, representative of an aspect of some idea that you're excited about. And then you could see how are people actually engaging with this thing that you're trying to design or this new service or this new process or whatever it is that, that you have. And then you could watch them and actually measure and see, okay, are they Using this in the way that that I thought it would be used. Are they do they seem interested? Are they actually you know clicking on this thing as opposed to you know saying just in a meeting, yeah, I think I might click on that. Are they actually coming up to this um, you know new product you've designed and trying to to play with it and wanting to take it home or whatever it is more realistically than if you just ask them hypothetically, would you do this? So that that's kind of the thinking behind rapid experimentation. Is it's, it's in essence it's a risk mitigation strategy. It's a technique for finding out early on um the efficacy of your idea at solving the need for which it was designed.
0: So you say in your course that it's 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 hard for people to get into this kind of a mindset. Why is it hard for people to get into a rapid experimentation mindset?
1: Well, the interesting thing about it is you, you have to come from a place of I don't know, right? You you have to say I have this idea, I don't actually know if it's a good idea. But we're conditioned from early on that When someone asks you a question that you know the answer to it and that you're always, you know, saying, Oh, this is great, or I know how this is gonna turn out, or you know, even just things that um, I mean, some things are facts, right? Like if someone asks you a math question, what's five plus four? And you say, Oh, I know it's nine. And starting at a young age, we're conditioned that when people ask you questions that, that they're factual and they have answers, and that you as a reasonable, smart person are proving your worth and your knowledge by knowing the answers to questions. Rapid experimentation is the opposite of that. It starts from a place of, I don't know the answer to this. And I'm, I'm never going to find out by sitting at my desk and thinking really hard, (laughs) or even I'm never going to find out by hanging out with some really other smart people at my work and discussing it for a really long time. I'm still not going to get the answer. It's admitting that the only way you're going to get the answer is by running an experiment that might fail, right? It's in the word. It's an experiment. Like, it could be true. It could be false. Who knows? We'll see. We have a hypothesis about how it might turn out, but lots of hypotheses are disproven. And this may be a situation like that. And being open to that and, and saying, hey, this is whatever it is that happens at the end. We're actually going to learn something that's really cool and and useful. So even if we learn that this idea in its current form is not a good idea, we're going to learn something about why it's not you know, working as is. And that's going to lead to an even better idea, you know, immediately thereafter, because people are endlessly creative, and can always take any new information and turn it to something else. It's so cool. And it's it's giving yourself the opportunity to say, Hey, I don't know, isn't a place of weakness. It's really a place of strength. It's that you're, you're saying, I don't know the answer to that. But guess what, I have a way to find out and what I find out is going to be even better than any knowledge I have right now. And that is just so impactful and powerful in a workplace or just, you know, in your own personal life, because it takes you to this new place that, that always claiming you have the answers d- doesn't take you to. But that's really how we're conditioned. And there's actually been a lot of research. There's some really cool studies around how, you know, kids are conditioned from a young age to avoid saying, I don't know, some of which involve asking kids weird questions that have no answer like who's angrier a pair of pants or a whiteboard (laughs) (laughs) it's a real study Um, really yeah it's an actual study that um was done and it's a psych study basically they took kids of different ages and they would ask them these questions that had no answer and and they would even say who's angrier pants or whiteboard you can say i don't know and then kids i think the majority of the time even when they were told you can say i don't know they wouldn't say i don't know
0: now, kids, kids in general love to be right. I have one. Yeah. I know this for a fact.
1: Right. They, re- But, but it, what's interesting is that it gets worse and worse and worse as they get older. And um, yeah,
0: I'm seeing that too.
1: <laughs> right. And yeah. then it doesn't actually go away when you're an adult. <laughs> Unfortunately.
0: Although I tend to live in that rapid experimentation mindset because I feel like I say, I don't know a lot.
1: That's awesome.
0: I feel stronger now. Thank you. This is a very affirming podcast for me. <laughs>
1: Right? Totally. You're like, I'm so ahead of the game. <laughs> I don't know
0: anything. No, just kidding. I know a few. Let's find out. Um, yeah, so I guess it must be easier for some people than others. That's true, to to admit that they just don't know. That's kind of it's kind of vulnerable, right? You
1: Yeah, it is. It really is.
0: Well, yeah. how do you how do you plan to test? How do you plan what to test and, and um you know that that first hypothesis and and then how do you know if you're testing the right thing?
1: Um, great. So I think this is one of the hardest things actually for people about rapid experimentation after this, I don't know part is there's a reason why there's a word rapid and rapid experimentation, why it's not like slow experimentation or really extremely deliberative, ridiculously careful experimentation. It's it's not called that. And it's because you, you want to um, start by trying to only answer one question about your idea. and ideas have all kinds of implied assumptions in them. So like, let's say, for example, I had this idea for, let, let's go with the angry pants example, actually, let's say I had this idea for these pants that you were going to wear, you're really angry, and they were going to calm you down. Mm-hmm. It's a very random product. But mm-hmm. um, I have clothes like so that. You have clothes like that? Yeah. Your you angry mm-hmm. clothes. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. So I, I've done some research. And I've discovered that There's some particular design and style of pants that really work for angry people. Okay, great. So now what? I could go and I could design that that pair of angry pants, like soup to nuts, everything about it, and it would take a while, and I would, um, you know, have people try them on, maybe. But it's it's really going to be a long, involved process. Um, Or I could say, hey, what are all the questions I have about whether or not these pants are going to really work for people? So, for example, I might say, do the pants like, is it possible for me to make this style I have in mind for a wide variety of people's sizes? Are people interested in, tr- in buying something that is less stylish, maybe, but more, you know, impactful in terms of their day? So it has this positive impact on them, but like, really, it's less stylish. Um, so that's a question about the style of the pant and whether people would accept it. Are people interested at a high level of the concept of angry pants? Like, with, is, is that even something like if it was advertised, they would look twice. So I would create a series of, of really specific questions like that about all the things that I'm not sure are going to be effective about these pants. I'm kind of playing a devil's advocate about the pants. And so then the benefit of creating these really distinct questions is it frees me from having to test everything about these pants all at once, which would be some long involved process. Instead, I can just pick one question I have about these pants and figure out some quick way that I can get that question answered without having to design every last thing about these pants. And that that's where the rapid and rapid experimentation comes from is that you're dividing this world of all the things you could test and all the things you could design about your idea. And instead narrowly focusing on what's the first most important thing for me to learn with this pants example. It might be, I just want to know at a high level if people might be interested, if they'd even be willing to engage with an advertisement about these pants. Like if someone mentioned to them in passing, Hey, there's these pants available. They'd be like, Oh, I'm interested in learning more about that. Notice I don't even have to design the pants necessarily to answer that question. All I need to do is maybe do a landing page and some Facebook ads about these pants, right? Maybe it's just like a artist rendering of some pants that like, and some bullets and then I see, do people interact with some Facebook ads and click on them? And then I can collect some email addresses of the people who are interested in hearing when the pants come out. And then I might, you know, follow up with them and run subsequent experiments on this group that's now interested. I might post those ads and then nobody's interested, right? Su- such a small number of people click through, if anyone. And then I know, hey, I, I can stop worrying about these pants. I'm, I- I'm not going to design them moving forward. But I still might follow up with, you know, the limited number of people who were interested and see why why they weren't interested or why they were interested and maybe build on that and expand this pant idea and so on. So it let's say that, you know, there is interest in the pant. I'm like, oh great. So then I would look at what what's the next question? Okay, well, the next question might be about this style thing. Like, how are people willing to do this straight off trade-off between style and utility with the pan? And I might design some experiment that involves creating some you know, more stylish looking pants and less stylish looking pants and seeing, doing an AB test and having people come into this little fake store I've set up and seeing like which one they buy and try on and so on. So there's all kinds of things that you could do to answer a narrow question quickly. And there's not, I think that a trap sometimes people fall into is that they start adding more and more questions. So for example, we did a study um, recently, actually coincidentally in the clothing space um, in the retail clothing space. And it was this new idea. I can't actually say what it is for NDA reasons, but it was this really cool, expansive idea. And there was a lot of back and forth with our client because they, they, you know, every day, Oh, let's test one more. Let's add one more thing into the test to make it more realistic. Let's add another thing into the test to make it more realistic. And it, it may seem at the beginning that, that that's a, you're making it better. But what happens at the end is you've actually made it worse. Because now, when people like it or don't like it, or engage with it or don't engage with it, you're not sure why. You don't know if it was because of the one thing you added into it that was really cool, or the second thing you added into it, or the third thing. Right? Because now you're like, well, huh? This might be kind of expensive to launch and create this experience that is, um, you know, so full-featured as a V1. It's it's just really a lot. Now, Now I'm not sure which of these features I need to remove. And so now I need to run a bunch more tests, you know, with all these combinations of like that feature removed and this feature removed because I didn't answer the base question about, you know, I had a hypothesis that X feature was most important, but I never tested it on its own because I kept expanding the question, adding more in. And now at the end, it's I'm stuck and I know people like it, but I'm really not sure why or what happened so that can happen right
0: so so you're talking so it's rapid experimentation so you you come up these questions you test them really quickly but how long does this phase actually take i mean how when do you stop asking questions and start making things how do you know
1: well i mean you notice that when you're making things the things you're making are actually taking you down the path to design right so it's not like you make it and then okay well now i have to throw that all out like you've made something you've tested it if it did well you know probably was a few changes, like you're already going down that design path with smaller steps. If if you tested and did poorly, okay, maybe we're going to get rid of that part. Maybe there's a piece of that, that design that I can salvage. But I, I think that, that what's interesting about it is I don't know that, that you're ever done. I think it's more of like a mindset that instead of doing everything, doing a bunch of stuff, and then having a big test at the end, you're doing a lot of small pieces. And each test doesn't have to be a lot of people, even just getting you know, a few people to engage with this thing that you've made, clearly, at some point, you're like, Okay, I have enough data points that I'm going to break off a larger piece, right? I'm going to design like, you know, now my question is, um, does this whole experience hang together? Right. (laughs) Uh, And so then you might put all these pieces together and, and design a larger thing and add on and have all this glue. And you know, now it's like a full featured app or a full featured store that sells these pants or whatever it is. But it's, that's the mindset part is that you're you're looking for opportunities to test things before you've put in a lot of commitment. There's actually a really great um, example of that. It's this company called Clover. They're on the East Coast. They're a, um, a, a fast food place, basically. It's vegetarian fast food for meat eaters is the idea. And the guy who runs it has this mindset, I would say more than anyone I've ever met. From the beginning, he said, I don't really know how to make vegetarian food that meat eaters are going to love. And so I'm not going to like put a lot of commitment into setting up a whole, you know, restaurant. That's so he, what he did is he bought a food truck and he painted it white with whiteboard paint. And, um, he started making different sandwiches and experimenting, not just with the sandwiches he was selling out of the food truck, but also just the language he had on the menu, which, you know, he painted his whole whiteboard his whole truck with whiteboard material. And so he could like write around it and like experiment with different logos. And now it's this very pop- popular store. Eventually, you know, he made it to the point where he opened up a physical store and now it's a chain and there's a whole bunch of them. And they're continuing to experiment, not just with their product offering, but with HR, the content in their manual, you know, how they structure, promotions, like everything, like the whole, their whole business is on this philosophy of experimentation because he feels like you can only get better by trying different things as opposed to just at the beginning, committing to to one thing. And actually this raises another good point, which is p- part of the culture of experimentation is, um, experimenting on different things, right? So I keep saying you have one idea. Why not have two or three ideas at the beginning that you're testing concurrently? We do a lot of that. We'll push our client. We'll say, okay. Let's pick three ideas right now. Let's not even commit to one. Let's just pick three that we're excited about or semi-excited about. And let's challenge ourselves to, in the next two weeks, test all three of them concurrently. How can we make these experiments be small enough that we're not killing ourselves, testing all three concurrently? Because whatever we learn at the end of these two weeks is going to be more than we know now. Or even in the next week, can we test all three concurrently?
0: I think, well... In your years of experience working with clients, you, you have the strategy of testing two or three things, um, which is smart. What other lessons have you learned? Like, what are the hard lessons you've learned doing these experiences working with clients so that, you know, uh, others don't have to go through the same the same trial and error process you did? Share, share, share with us some, some words of wisdom.
1: Okay. So I'm going to switch hats and say, okay, here's when testing um, doesn't work. So, um, here I am advocating for testing. No,
0: no, it's good to know when not to use it too, right? Yeah. So okay.
1: here's, here's an example of what could really go wrong. So we had a client that hired us at the beginning to design some like initial concepts for their product. It was, it was actually really interesting. It's, it's a mobile app that, um, it's in the medical space and it uses your, um, iPhone camera in this novel way to, um, do some eye related testing. Um, and so, we designed the initial concepts for how it might work. That was great. Um, and then they hired someone um, to do all the, this really detailed design work. There are a lot of different screens, and a lot of like really detailed user interface design um, because we were kind of too expensive for their startup, which is fine. So we, tran- we transferred the work to this person and they still had this really nice mindset about testing, which is awesome. But then what they did is they proceeded to test every little thing constantly. And so they would design some little thing and then they would, you know, one little screen in the UI and then they would test that out of context of the larger experience, which by this point had been designed, the the larger thing. And then, um, and they hear some feedback about how this didn't work and that didn't work. And then they would change it. And then they get some feedback on a different part of the experience out of context. And then they would change it. And this kept going on for a month where they were every week doing a lot of testing. And by the way, it was a mobile app and they weren't testing on a mobile device. They were testing on a screen because, you know, hey, we're being rapid. And so they would recruit some people remotely and they would show them the screens, you know, using GoToMeeting or Skype or whatever on their um, their desktop. And which is a very different interaction, as you can imagine, than if someone's holding a phone. So they're getting all these feedback and they're making changes, and they're making changes, and suddenly they take a step back and they realize they've created a Frankenstein. It's horrible. Like <laughs> the thing doesn't hang together at all really inconsistent. This one thing that's fixed here now breaks something else over there. The flow doesn't make any sense. Like maybe individually each piece, you know, is, is good, but together it, it, you can't launch this. It's bad, really bad. And so they came back to us and they said, we don't know what's wrong. Like we have followed this methodology that you've been advocating of testing. And, uh, you know, somehow we've ended up with this horrible thing, <laughs> don't let this happen to you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I mean, you know what the punchline is, right? Like when you get down the path of of this thing that's growing, that's turning into an idea that's coagulating, you can't then dissect it into small parts. Number one, you have to look at the big picture, look at the decisions you're making in context. Number two, as the designer, you you don't just like take whatever it is that the user said, or that you saw them do at you know, and just you know, well, you know that's what I heard them say. So I'm going to change it. Like you, you're, this is where that part of I know starts to come in, right? You didn't know what um, the issue might have been. Now you know, and now you need to rely on your expertise to think about what the solution might be. The user is never going to give you the solution, and so you need to assess. Well, I saw this person having a problem, or I saw these people. You know, I and. I'm actually thinking, you know, maybe this isn't a problem. Maybe it's just that one person who had that problem, and you know, if I fix it for that one, it's going to break it for the other, you know, a hundred who are um, going to not struggle in that place. And that's like some feature that's really important. And if I remove it, it's, it's going to break everything, right? So you kind of have to be thoughtful, right? Like this is that time, and look at the results, and not just say, you know, well my hands are tied. This is what the user said like your hands aren't tied, like this is a data point. And you're, you're listening to the user and you're understanding their point of view. And they're making an, you're making an assessment about how likely that issue is going to come up and then how effective any intervention you make to avoid that issue is going to be. And whether it's going to create new problems or solve this problem or whatever, like you have to think all of that through. And so it's not the rapid experimentation. It doesn't absolve you from responsibility around design and decision-making. It's, it's just, you know, a data point that you didn't have before that's really important and useful, but you still need to continue being thoughtful.
0: Very good advice. Designers, you've all been warned. <laughs> you can't, you know, it's, its yes. And it's also good to remember that it is just a data point And you have to interpret that with your experience, you know, instead of letting it make the decisions for you.
1: Right. Right. And then I think that, you know, the other point about the context that it's, it's you know, at the beginning, I'm like, hey, break it into small pieces, ask questions, have it be just one thing. But then as you've asked more and more questions, and it's come together, unfortunately, it's, it's harder to do that. Again, you just have to be thoughtful about it.
0: Well, you know, in addition to you, know, we've been talking a little bit, we you're, in addition to your teaching, um, you run your own agency, Slice Bread Design. And we've been talking a little bit about some of your client work. Um, but, but what we haven't um, talked about really is that your, your, your firm focuses on using design thinking, which, yes. you know, ec- rapid experimentation is a part of that. But um, I want to ask you, you know, why design thinking? And, and for people who are familiar with it, um, although more and more people are these days, can you walk us through the, the process of how it works and, and give an example of how you've used design thinking to solve a, a particularly interesting problem for a client?
1: Sure. So design thinking, I, I think it's a combination of a process and a mindset. And it came, you know, people say, oh, it came out of Stanford and it's this relatively new thing. It's actually really old. It, it's been around an incredibly long time. Um, for example, if you have a phone on your desk, And it has a, um, it's not a cordless phone or a mobile phone, but it has that cord that attaches, you know, the headset to the actual phone Mm -hmm. itself. Um, there's this really cool article I read about, you know, how that was designed in the forties or fifties and the process for designing that, that cord, that same design has been around since then. And there was this whole thing around how they were thinking about, um, you know, interview, watching people engage with this new phone device and then thinking about, Oh, how, um, Uh, what's the length of the cord? How long should it be on phones? And so they ran all these cool experiments around, uh, you know, in this office where uh, unsuspectingly at night, someone would come around and shorten all the cords in the (laughs) office. And then see (laughs) when people complained.
0: (laughs) Wow, it's like using design thinking for pranks.
1: Yeah, totally. But then what happened is AT&T took the data from that and then made billions of phones that had a cord that was designed, you know, in this really human-centered way. So cool! It's a really long time ago, and so it's not that design thinking is this new thing. Like, oh my gosh, we just discovered we should talk to people about designing things for them. Who knew? <laughs> you know, it's it's not like super novel. It's it's just that it's um, a codification of a process that's been around a while, right? And different people did it different ways and have different perspectives on it. And and what Stanford and you know ideo did i guess about 11 12 years ago is they said we're we're going to codify this we're going to say we're going to give it a name and we're going to put together a series of steps into a process and then put to, sort of call out here here's the mindset you need to have to be effective based on looking at all these different ways that people have been doing something similar to design thinking for decades you know if not millennia right like i i don't i don't see any reason why people didn't follow this kind of process like in the cave, right? The, mm-hmm. They probably did. So for people who aren't familiar with it, the process, let me talk about that briefly and then I'll talk about the mindset and how they overlap. And so the the process looks like this. The theme throughout you'll notice is human-centered, right? Like how does mm-hmm. this really work for people? You start off by interviewing and absorbing people who are engaging in the behavior or, you know, interacting with the product or doing the sorts of things that um you're trying to um design for and so people say well i haven't designed anything yet and the thing i'm making is brand new and it doesn't exist who am i going to watch well people if you're designing something it's probably solving a problem for people that they have and so you're going to need to talk to them about that problem and how they're solving it if it's something that people have never done ever and they're never going to do it and they have like no familiarity with it ever it's unlikely you're going to create a product people are going to use because it's not a thing it's not addressing anything that people actually do So I would assume if you're making some product or service, it's somehow going to fit in with some existing thing, no matter how tangential people are doing. And so you're going to want to find out about that and talk to people about it and understand what their point of view is and look for, it's called need finding because you're looking for needs that people have in that area, things that are broken or things that they might not even realize are broken, but you notice as an interviewer and an observer that they're doing in a weird way that creates an opportunity. So you, you do these interviews, then you develop these insights around what it is you saw and so you dig really deep and you really try to like figure out okay I came into these interviews observations with some preconceived notions about what I thought might be broken or the needs that might be there what are some other things that are happening that that you know are maybe new or novel that no one's noticed before that's why it's called an insight and not just an observation it's something that's insightful and different it's something that you might not have come up with just sitting on your own at home. So you develop these insights and use them to seed a brainstorm. You have a brainstorm, you invite all kinds of people, you come up with all kinds of ideas, as many as you possibly can. Um, you select a few of those ideas, you, um, you know, maybe sketch them out or think about what they are, discuss them with your team, and then you come up with some way to um, test them, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're mm-hmm. in that rapid experimentation part, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go back out, I'm going to get more Um, I'm going to gather some observations, watch people engage with this in some kind of way. What do I need to design to facilitate this test, this experiment I'm going to run? Go back out, you get feedback in some kind of way. You develop more insights, you go back around the circle. Okay, now I have some insights. Now I'm going to come up with some new ideas that reflect the insights I've gathered. And now I'm going to figure out some way to test them. So you see it's this kind of cyclical process of um, understanding from users having that inform some design that you're doing and then going back out to users and getting feedback on it. That's in, in a nutshell, probably the quickest description of, of design thinking I have from a process oriented perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the, if I flip it and I say, okay, let's just forget about process. Let's say you just do whatever you want and however you want it. Let's just focus on the mindset. The mindset ha- has a few really specific components as well. So wh- one of the things about the mindset is um, design thinking is about collaboration. And so while you could follow this process on your own, there's this bias towards involving people, especially people who are varied groups. So not the people who you work with all the time at work, but maybe you're going to invite someone new to your brainstorm who's from a different division who doesn't know anything about this. And so it's about, you know, having teams that that form that are eclectic and collaborative. Another part of the mindset is yes and. And what that means is building on ideas of others. So, you know, that theme of, of not knowing all the answers. Like, how can I, if I hear someone say something and I don't like it, that's fine. I don't have to say that idea sucks. I can just build on it and say, yes. And here's another thing that changes your idea in a little bit to make it even better. Isn't um, that
0: isn't that a trick of improv? Don't they do that for improv? It is. I mean, that's my yes. thought. That's my thought. Yes.
1: And and you'll see, like when we do brainstorming or if you go to a class at the d school we're doing improv like improv work as part of this like when i start a brainstorm the first thing i do is i do a little improv at the beginning of the um the brainstorm to get yourself into this mindset of yes and that you're not slamming people another part of the mindset is is empathy that you're constantly looking um, for empathy uh, to what the experience is of your user also what the experience is of your team And so um, a big part of design thinking, like because of this impact, uh, emphasis on collaboration and empathy is, is really focusing on how you are as a team member. And as a matter of fact, the D school has a position. Someone is a D shrink. I'm I'm not even kidding you. (laughs) Julian, he's awesome. Wow. Every,
0: every business and office needs that.
1: I know. Right. Yes. It, It works so well. And he comes in and he's like, you know, Hey, here's something you could try to fix this problem you're having in your team and it just changes everything because it turns out you could be following this process and be like really you know super collaborative personally and this and that but then you're you're still not working because your team hasn't coagulated into like a functioning team which which is just as important as any of this other process-based work that you're doing and so it's been great having having someone who has that role and you probably i'm assuming your company doesn't have you know a shrink not yet Uh, but it's something that you could consider like, Hey, if, if this isn't working, if we're not doing well, is, is it because of some problems with the way we're interacting? Is there some way we could reach out and get help or read an article or do an exercise or something that's going to help us? There's a lot of content about that online. Um, so those are three parts of the mindset. There, there's more pieces of the mindset, um, that I could go into, but you know, it, it's good to start small. <laughs>
0: Well, can you walk us through, like, um, walk us through, like, a specific problem, like, that you've used sure. design thinking for from start to finish so we can see how the process works, like, with a real
1: example? Yeah. So we um, had a client, um, it's a startup called Stragillion. Shout out to Stragillion, I love them. Um, and they, um, they were these guys who were from the um, security space. They'd worked in government security, digital security, that kind of thing. And now they had kids. And they were noticing that their kids were spending a lot of time online and social media. And um, they were worried about the privacy and security of their kids online. And um, they initially thought, hey, it'd be really cool to create some kind of product to help parents manage the social media use of their kids, maybe using some of this technology that we know about that's used by the government. Sounds kind of scary. (laughs) So they came to us with this idea, but they, they said, you know, we we don't really want to make a Me Too product. There's a lot of products out there that are um, kind of surveying your kids and giving you information about what they're doing online. And we, we could maybe make a better version of that. But we're wondering if there's something we could do that's even more innovative. We're just not sure. And we said, okay, well, let's just follow the design thinking process and see where it leads. So we started off, we interviewed um, five families. Now notice that the it's not like some vast number of families, um, but we carefully selected five families that had kids of varying ages because we weren't sure if the target audience should be, you know younger kids or tweens or teens or who it should be. And so we um, met with these families and we interviewed the parents and the kids separately and had them show us how they're using social media and, you know, talk to the parents about how they've been managing their kids' media use and what's been going on and what, what are the conflicts that have happened and so on and so forth. And it was really rich data. It was really great. And then we took a step back and we looked at all this data and there was this recurring theme that, the parents that were most successful at managing their kids' social media use and of having some insight into what was going on were the parents who had a lot of conversations with their kids about the use, as opposed to we had other parents in the study who did a lot of surveillance, like they would um, stalk their children on <laughs> Facebook, or they would um, take their phone every night and look through it and, you know, kind of have all these rules and contracts and this and that. And all, all the kids we saw were actually successfully able to kind of break any uh, software that was installed that was preventing them from doing things. <laughs> we, we didn't see any examples of that working effectively. And it just created this situation that was kind of big brother-y. And, 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 right. Sounds like and so, it created
0: a hacker mindset to me. It, it
1: really did. It, did it, just, it wasn't going well. And, and and the parents talked about how that they don't want to be a big brother. they don't want to have that kind of relationship in their family. No, nobody wants to be a police officer in their home and and the parents who found themselves in that position were really unhappy. and the parents who found themselves in a place where they could have these conversations with their kids and get context about anything that was concerning were, were the happiest and doing the best. And so we were wanted to see if there was a way that we could facilitate more of that kind of behavior as opposed to this big brother atmosphere of this like big heavy security product. and so, So what we had this brainstorm and so the insight just to be crisp about the process, we Mm -hmm. did these interviews and observations and we had this insight and the insight was how might we help parents and kids have more conversations about the kids' social media use, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't about how might we help parents monitor their kids' social media use or um, get more, you know, insight into exactly what it is that their kids are doing online. It was This different take on the problem, which Mm -hmm. was, this is about facilitating conversations and and not necessarily about surveillance. Hmm. And so that freed us up to come up with all kinds of ideas that were maybe different than what had existed on the table before. And so we had a brainstorm. We came up with hundreds of ideas and I won't go into all of them, but one of the ones (laughs) that was interesting was,
0: um, we only have an hour, Julie.
1: Right. Okay. So I'm just going to, yeah. Just what if um, When, uh, l- let's say the parent and the, or the child installed the software on their mobile phone, it would monitor them. But then if it found something that was concerning, it wouldn't just tell the parent, it would tell the parent and the child at the same time, here's this thing we've noticed in your feed is concerning, and then position it as part of this like conversational UI. Hmm. And so th- that was kind of the big idea. And then there were all these smaller ideas that that hung off of it and so we said okay let's let's figure out what is it that we want to test first well this whole thing is about conversation and so our our question was will telling parents and kids something about the kids social media use actually facilitate a conversation in a digital space right Mm -hmm. very narrow and so we said okay how can we test that really quickly and we um looked around to see what we could do those off the shelf. We don't want to do any programming. That's another part of rapid experimentation. You you don't want to invest a lot of resources and like programming a lot of things. So we said, okay, let's use Slack. So we recruited some families and we had them install Slack, which has desktop, web, and mobile. Very cool, right? Comes with Mm -hmm. everything. And then um, we recruited the kids and had them agree that we could monitor their um, social media feeds for a week. And they gave us their username and passwords and we paid them some money so that they were happy. So then we, um, and then we monitored them and we told them there was a, a computer monitoring it behind the scenes. It was actually a person, right? Cause the technology doesn't exist yet. And then when something came up, we would slack it to the parent and the child and see what, what would happen. And, and we also told them that, um, if nothing came up, if, the, if, you know, their feed was just like, so, you know, pure as a driven snow all week that we would make something <laughs> up. Um, but it turned out we didn't actually have to do that because no one's feed was was that (laughs) pure. But so then we posted these and then we saw, we could witness, did people have a conversation about it or not? And then we followed up with each of them and interviewed them about how that experience went. This particular experience went extremely well. People had all kinds of conversations and learned all kinds of things. And we also learned that this was going to be an experience that worked better for tweens than for teens for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And we learned about the kind of content that, um, people would post and what sorts of things generated discussion and what sorts of things didn't and all kinds of stuff that actually radically changed any ideas we had about how this thing might be designed in the future through this extremely simple, basic experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we ended up designing it, um, and then went through, you know, more rounds of experimentation that I'm going to uh, not go into now, but th- this is kind of, I would say the classic case. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of examples where you run the experiment and it doesn't work, Right. And it fails. But then, as I said before, I, I've always learned something new and different that's been ridiculously useful.
0: Ooh, that would be okay. Okay. I'm 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 now I'm curious. So maybe you don't have one off the top of your head and that's fine. But has there, can does one pop into mind where you know you did the pro you went through the process and it failed and a better idea came out of
1: it? Yeah. So let me think if I can think of a good one that I can actually share. It's often Clients don't want me to share those ideas.
0: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) These are these are hard stories. It's so hard
1: to say you don't know on your own. It's really hard when someone says it for you. You know, in a public setting. And they didn't know anything. Guess what?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I probably shouldn't put you on the spot with that one. Uh, Maybe that's the follow up question for the next time we talk. When you can, I think
1: so. I think I can come up with something. I think I would just need to to think it through. And and by the way, it happens all the time. I would say, actually, here's a good example. Netflix, I was talking to their head of um, uh, personalization and, you know, who does all this data crunching to like figure out what the algorithm should be that, that Netflix has for personalization. 90% of the time, the the tweaks to the algorithm that they come up with fail. Wow. 90% of the time. Wow. And by the way, I've spoken to other people in that industry and, and that's typical for algorithm tweaks for personalization types of things online. So- are they sad about that? No, they're fine with it. I (laughs) find that
0: personally quite discouraging, but okay.
1: No, they're fine with it. They're like, we have just figured out a way to test things a lot. And the 10% (laughs) of the time that it works, it works really well. And we're really happy. And then the other 90% of the time, we're just trying stuff out. And it's just really creative and fun. And we're, you know, just have this mindset that like, let's try it. Who cares? It's actually kind of freeing, right? Because people are expecting things to fail. And so when they fail, it's not like, oh, let's just really, oh, oh my God. It's like, oh, whatever.
0: So they are really okay with it. You know, people say that a lot that, you know, it's okay to fail, but oftentimes they say it, but don't mean it.
1: Yeah. And and you really have to be, I mean, here's another example, Google X, which is Google's big, you know, experimental incubation arm. They, um, so maybe it's not Alphabet X anyways. So they, um have this group where when there's some idea that that, you know, emerges from the research that they've done, the group is tasked with trying to see if they can kill it. And they run all kinds of experiments. And if they actually succeed in killing the idea, because they prove that it's not going to work, even if you know, maybe it'll morph into something else. But like, hey, this idea its basic, they they actually get rewarded, they get vacation time, (laughs) they get a bonus. I'm not even kidding you, right? This is a different type of mindset. And so I would encourage people to think about how you can Free failure at your company to encourage people to do this kind of experimentation because then, I mean, if everything's safe, no one's ever going to experiment, like come up with some idea that's really radical and different because they'll be so scared that what what if it doesn't work? Okay, well, what if it doesn't work? That's great. At least you tried it. You know. Okay.
0: So for people who are thinking about, uh, you know, who want to start using this process at work, uh, you know, product managers or designers, but are new to it, what are what advice do you have for them to? to get started with it?
1: Start small. Pick something small that, um, you know, especially if you don't have a culture in your work that, that is okay with failure or that gives you time to do this. Pick a small thing that's on your plate. Come up with a few ideas and see if you can, you know, run a very small test that maybe only you are privy to. And then and then once you get the results, and I guarantee you it's going to be super interesting, advertise the results. That That's how you're going to get people to you know, you're going to wet their appetite around rapid experimentation and say, Oh my gosh, I learned this really cool thing. Oh, really? What was it? Well, let me tell you. Da, 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 da. Wow. How did you learn that? Well, I did this thing called rapid experimentation on this really small scale. Uh, I feel like we should try it on another project. Yeah. So if you're, if you're starting, you know, start small, do something on your own and then advertise the results. And then it, it's like, you know, people will just get really intrigued and see and wonder how they might be able to get that kind of data on their
0: own also. That is great. That is great advice, especially for, you know, uh, a, a lot of it, a lot of design thinking um, adoption seems so cultural, you know, like um, yeah. if, if it comes from a, a leader who, who has already embraced the idea and um, and cannot come top down, but it's it's kind of empowering to know that as a, you know, as a single person in a, in an organization that doesn't yet support it, you can still do something. You can still start, Start it, you know. Use these tools to to um, start your own design thinking culture.
1: Yeah, it is very exciting Um, that you know you could start just in your team. And you know, if it's not coming top down, like have it go bottom up. Why not?
0: Two quick last questions:
1: What are you working on
0: now that's exciting you? And you know, what are what's going on around you? What other companies or products have caught your interest recently that yeah. you know we should be watching? Like, what's the next next big thing?
1: One of the things that that we've been working on that's, I think, new for us that I'm really excited about is we've been doing uh, more work, uh, more and more work for Samsung, and but not for what you would think, not for, you know, mobile or software, but around um, appliances and how people engage, again, not with the digital part of their appliance, but what's inside their fridge. And it's so exciting for me that these large companies are drinking the Kool-Aid and saying, hey design thinking it's, it's not just for digital products or for, you know, small startups. It's, it's, we can think about how people are going to, um, have shelving in their fridge, be organized and have like a whole different way that a fridge might work to really reflect how people are eating in the United States, which is different, you know, believe it or not, than it was in the fifties. And
0: <laughs> in what ways have you done that research? I mean, is that, is, it, is it interesting? I'm it, just it curious. Is. <laughs> um,
1: I can't say a lot about it, but I mean, one thing that the, you know, once you start looking, you'll notice people are eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, like more so than they did in the fifties. And when you look at people's fridges, especially, um, people who are, um, I would say, uh, middle-class upper middle-class, they have a lot of vegetables that are giant in their fridge that are all over the place. And a fridge just isn't really designed to support that. That is true. I
0: experience that problem myself all the time. Right. And Mm -hmm. you don't even
1: notice you're like, yeah, it's whatever this, but but this is something that, that a company like Samsung that makes a huge percentage of refrigerators sold in the United States, it, they can address. It doesn't have to be that way. And so I think that that's what's exciting to me is that design thinking causes you to notice something that it's actually quite obvious, right? You're not like shocked. Oh my God, what? People are eating more vegetables. You're like, yeah, you're right. That, that is what's happening. And then you think, well, why aren't people addressing that? Well, they could be. And so design thinking gives you the power to notice something that, that is actually just out there. And then have it be addressed by these things that we're engaging with every day that, you know, we don't even notice how annoying they are until it's pointed out to us. And then you're like, yeah, that is really annoying. Like, couldn't someone just fix it? Yeah, they could. <laughs> oh,
0: yes. There's so many things like that. You know, I forgot. I, I wanted to ask you a question so I'm, and I, I completely forgot, but I'm, I'm going to do it before we run out of time. You, you, we talked a little bit earlier and you said you were doing some really interesting work around intrapreneurship. And oh, wow. helping helping com- companies start these programs. And I was, I, you know, before we go, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, wh- what is it, and um, why are why are companies so excited to start start these programs?
1: So I think companies are noticing that, um, like, larger companies in particular, that number one, employees are leaving to go to startups, right? And that's concerning because they're losing some of their top talent, and they're noticing that their competitors, these startups or other companies that are, you know, medium sized are coming up with these innovative things that that are going to leave them in the dust. And so the idea of entrepreneurship is how can you create an entrepreneurial environment or an entrepreneurial program internally at your company so that you can, you know, have innovations and ideas flow out that might be, um, you know, new and innovative and different so that you get ahead of the game and then also so you can retain your employees so that they're if they're more entrepreneurial they they don't have to leave to have that they could they could stay here and contribute their knowledge and their um their skills um internally and and be empowered to do that and so companies are trying all kinds of different things and one thing that's been interesting is that um because companies are thinking about using you know using design thinking um as a process in these internal you know incubators or internal entrepreneurship programs, they then have this aha, where they say, have we designed our internal or entrepreneurial program correctly? (laughs) Maybe we should use design thinking to assess how well it's designed and design it even more effectively. So it's, it's like a very meta thing. It's, 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 it's happened now three times that we've been asked to do that. And that's been super interesting is to interview people internally at a company and understand how they're, using design thinking to be, you know, innovative at their company, and then also looking at what services a company is providing um, to their employees to enable them to be more innovative. And it's so fascinating. I I would say the one thing I've learned, I'm just going to leave you with this, is that the most effective programs provide coaching, that it's really hard to do design thinking or innovation work on your own, without the help of a coach who's experienced who can step in and point out, even just quickly, something you're doing, that if you just change that one thing, it would make all the difference. And people just aren't able to notice those things on their own. It's it's like if you look at, you know, soccer, you might know all the rules of soccer, Mm -hmm. and be a really great soccer spectator. But then when you go and you play soccer, you're just not going to do well without a coach who's Mm -hmm helping you become a better soccer player you'll just always kind of stay like eh, kind of you know lame like maybe not so good like you, it's not that you're you're confused about the rules you just need coaching and so it's the same thing with design thinking i would say that the soccer analogy is right on that if you have you, you could understand the process you could understand the rules you might have gone through a series of workshops classes and so forth but unless you have coaching you're just never able to to get the success out of it um, of the whole process that you could and so the companies that that provide coaching or the people who seek out coaches those are the people who are always the most effective.
0: Oh, that makes sense. And, you know, it just, it just does, you know, to, to have yeah. that expert help on hand to who experienced in doing it to point out how to do it better. Of course. Um,
1: I think it's just sold to people as, oh, anyone, and I did it too, right? Anyone can do it, start small, do it on your own. And, and you, can, you can, anyone can do it. But if you want to get the like bigger, you know, things out of design thinking that are promised. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen an example of that without coaching. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you, Julie, so much um for your time today. I, I I have a million more questions to ask you. So you know, we'll have to we'll have to do this again sometime.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Well, tell people really quickly how they can find you online.
1: Yep. So you can visit our website at www.slicedbreaddesign.com. or you could just email me directly at Julie at slicedbreaddesign.com. And I will respond. And you can also sign up for her
0: uh, her course on rapid oh, experimentation on Safari, right?
1: Yes, totally. You actually should do that. If you want to hear a lot more about exactly how you can do rapid experimentation, everyone should take the course.
0: It's great. Well, thanks again, Julie. Have a great day.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find Julie Stanford on Twitter at SliceBreadUX. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and rate us in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud, so you never miss an episode.